And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a high school social studies teacher and a middle and high school principal, and as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, and this is All the Above, a show that gives you the latest news and analysis on all matters related to education, because mainstream media outlets are too distracted by the president's tweets to talk about our schools. Man, they're a bunch of suckers. But lucky for you, we're here to help you dive deep into what's going on in education. Now, if you're listening to the audio podcast, thank you for tuning in. But do remember that if you go over to our YouTube channel or our website, we've got all sorts of extras. We have one-on-one videos with our guests, we have shorts, we have links to all the stories and studies that we mentioned, and we also have a teacher vlog where I share a little bit about my classroom practice. So make sure you check that out. But for today's episode, Jeff, what's on our agenda? Well, I'm super excited, Manuel. We have a great episode today uh, for our main segment. We are going to be joined by two fantastic individuals, both with uh, deep expertise around trauma-informed practice. Now, this is something that's becoming kind of more and more uh, known and and talked about in our profession, um, and frankly, in other fields as well, in mental health and uh, in healthcare in general. Um, but we're gonna really dive deep mm. into the lens of trauma-informed practices in nice. schools and what the implications are for this work um, in uh, school settings when we're dealing with students who are who are um, struggling with issues related to trauma and adverse childhood experiences. So it's going to be a good one. You definitely want to stick around for it. Hold up. I just got a notification. Oh, man. Did he he really just tweet that? Does he know how to spell? Does he have autocorrect? We just talked about this. man. Just because it's in all caps doesn't mean that it's But look how he spelled this. Here. Pre- all right. All presidential right. with a with a S-I-A-L at the end. All right. Let, <laughs> let's talk about education. Uh-huh. Up next is our do now. Time for the do now. Let's take a look at some recent headlines in education, particularly some stories that you might have missed. Jeff, how are we doing the do now today? Well, Manuel, uh, you know, you know, I'm a big supporter of reading and writing across the curriculum. Oh, yes. yes, yes. Uh, and vocabulary is the cornerstone of all literacy. Mm, so mm. we got a lexicon today. All right. Lexicon. I love it. Let's take a look at the first lexicon term for today. Mm. All right. Our first term is preventative. You mean preventative, like, uh, you know, you take a lot of vitamin C and get some extra sleep at night and uh, try to fight off a cold? Yeah, kind of like that, except instead of fighting off a cold, we're talking about preventing um, a crazy amount of suspensions and expulsions at the preschool mm-hmm. level. So, you know, sort of the same. Sort of you say preschool level? level? Preschool, yes. Wow. Okay. Preschool kids get suspended. Wild, I yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, a uh, recent Heckinger report. Heckinger. Heckinger. Nice. Well played. Heckinger. Heckinger. Heckinger report <laughs> cites that last fall, former governor of California, uh, Jerry Brown, Uh, before leaving office, signed legislation that'll help support putting more mental health professionals in publicly funded preschool programs to help out preschool teachers. Basically, the move is looking at the 
terribly high amount of preschoolers who get suspended and expelled and um, looking to help teachers deal with some of the frustrations that they encounter working in a preschool classroom mm. and help them learn new practices and policies to, to try to uh, navigate their work in such a way that doesn't result in discipline issues. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think about this? Well, so I, I have like mixed emotions about this. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I'm excited that uh, this this move from uh, former Governor uh, Brown mm -hmm. and, and the state legislature is going to bring additional resources to our early childhood educators. Right. right. Um, you know, it, teaching is a very stressful job. You know, people often have this impression in their heads that like, oh, you get summers off and, you know, you get to go home at at uh, 3 p.m. or whatever. But uh, what they're missing is how hard the work is and how you showed up up at work at 6 a.m. Right. or 7 a.m. to start, right? Um, and so, you know, so I'm excited that teachers are getting this additional support, right? right. Particularly folks working with our youngest students um, and uh, setting a strong foundation. On the other hand, I'm looking at the numbers and I'm kind of like mm. completely blown away. So we have uh, 50,000, now this data is from 2016, um, but 50,000 preschoolers were suspended at least once across the country and at least 17,000 were expelled. Now this is according to the Center for American Progress. Now, uh, you know, we live in a giant country, so 50,000 is still probably a relatively small number That's overall. That's a big number to me. But I'm just imagining like, what does a preschooler do to get suspended or expelled yeah. from school? Like bite someone, you know? I mean, not that that's good, right. but we're not talking about, you know, bringing a gun to school or, you yeah. know, like a serious crime or something. Yeah, yeah, I was really shocked by that number. I mean, it's been years since I've, you know, had any, um, any sort of experience with pre-K and um, I haven't observed a preschool classroom and I don't have children of my own, so I don't really know uh, the context of this classroom. So to hear that children, 50,000 were suspended and 17,000 expelled, was it, yeah, 17,000 expelled, like how do you even get expelled from preschool? Right. Um, but the article profiles a, a mental health consultant by the name of uh, Charlie Grunwag, and she explains in the article that a lot of times um, teachers do things to sort of exacerbate these issues out of their own frustration, uh, calling mm -hmm. a student out in front of the whole class, um, shaming a student, basic little things that teachers do that could really exacerbate a situation with the preschooler. And studies show that working with the mental health consultant and giving teachers a chance to sort of vent their frustrations and sort of learn a little bit about, more about how their interactions uh, could somehow, not somehow, how their interactions could sometimes increase the issue or exacerbate the issue. Uh, studies show that working with that mental health consultant really helps to curb the amount of suspensions mm. um, and reduce the amount of expulsion. So this is really promising that uh, California is, is, is looking at mental health consultants as uh, one particularly um, helpful tool for dealing with these discipline issues. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'm glad you said that. I think uh, what also was interesting in this uh, in this article is that um, it really brings to light also the the tough working conditions that our our preschool educators face. Yeah. Right. And so we've reported, I think, on two or three occasions before about just some of the the like objectively insane things that impact the life of our early childhood educators. Right. Low pay you know, poor training or non-existent training, right? Poor working conditions, right? And these are for our youngest, most fragile students, right? Yeah. 
Um, so uh, in the face of that, to have the state organizing to bring resources together for these folks is great. But a couple of other things that were called out in the article. Um, so research shows that early childhood educator, educators deal with chronic illness at rates higher than other teachers mm -hmm. um, of the same age. Um, one survey found that uh, almost one in four staff members at federally funded Head Start centers have clinically significant levels of depression. Wow. Right. So right. we're talking about a, a workforce that is that's doing a very challenging job for low pay often um, and under very difficult yeah. circumstances. Right. That's taking a toll on them. So to see this type of support to say, hey, these are people who are trying to do right um, and they need the right supports. I'm I'm happy yeah. about that. Yeah. And the article also points out that the attrition rate for uh, preschool teachers is double the attrition rate for mm -hmm. kindergarten through 12 teachers. And we talk about teacher turnover and high attrition rates uh, for teachers nationally and that being a problem. So for it to be double at the preschool level is, is, is really shocking and really troubling. And then add on top of that, that we're at a time where we're looking to expand pre-K options. And we talked about universal pre-K uh, movements in, in this show before. So, I mean, We've got to really invest in that. It's not, you know, it's not something that's going to be simple. I saw a story on the news the other day, a um, video of a, a, a preschool teacher that roughed up a student and um, was arrested. And looking at the video, like clearly this teacher just lost it and, you know, tossed the kid across the room, which is absolutely terrible. So to think we're going to expand preschool without supporting them with the right resources to really be able to do an effective job and support yeah. them, um, you know. Come on now. So I'm, I'm happy that we're heading in the direction of providing more resources and tools. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and might I suggest we could probably use some of these mental health consultants in our middle and high schools and elementary yes. schools also. Yes. <laughs> Frankly. All right, everybody. Next up, Manuel, we have the term radical. Radical. Radical like 1980s surfer. California lingo, like, wow, man, that's, that's radical, man. Totally radical, dude. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, no, not no. that kind of radical. Okay. Um, we're talking about um, radical as in uh, political radicalism. Um, and a fascinating recent article was put out by uh, the Associated Press profiling a very unique course being taught at Thomas Worthington High School in Worthington, Ohio. Now, this is a community uh, just outside of Columbus. Um, the course, which is called U.S. Political Thought and Radicalism, or lovingly called Polyrad, uh, I appreciate that, uh, for short, involves teachers inviting in members of America's radical political groups to engage with the class. Um, so to give you some context, groups who've come in include uh, the National Socialist Movement, the Weather Underground, and the Revolutionary Communists. Um, so students uh, study the speakers ahead of time, they gather background and prepare questions and then get to engage right. with these speakers. So, uh, you know, kind of kind of a different approach, man. Well, what, what do you think? Yeah. So um, to be fair, I only know about this class through this article. I haven't observed the class and I'm sure there's more details um, about this course and its history that weren't shared in the article. But um, in reading about this course, I thought that sounds like something that was probably really progressive and really a great idea, maybe in the in the 70s when it was founded. Um, but looking at recent events and sort of just how um, the internet age has, has impacted our dialogue around politics and race and gender, um, this class sounds like it could also be a little bit problematic. I'm picturing mm -hmm. a group of teenagers who, uh, you know, did their background on this extremist speaker that's gonna come in and the speaker is given airtime 
to share their views. And even though the teachers are, of course, uh, prepping students and, and having students really think about, think critically about where they're, uh, what tools this user, this speaker is using and, and the way they maybe, um, you know, manipulate facts and, and express bias and all that. I'm thinking, wow, this, these speakers are being given airtime and to give airtime for a speaker, any speaker that, whose views express bigotry, any speaker whose views express uh, a lack of, of humanity for others, you know, I think that's airtime that shouldn't happen in, in a public school setting at all. This whole, like, you know, let's listen to both sides sort of narrative that we've been hearing in recent years is uh, really BS. You know, there's a lot of uh, yeah. radical thought out there that doesn't deserve any airtime anywhere, particularly in a class, even if those students have been sort of prepped to, uh, you know, look at the speaker and think about the speaker's words through a critical lens. Even so, you know, a lot of these... I'm wondering if, if these speakers are, are, are perhaps able to recruit some new followers by being able to, to actually speak with folks face to face like that. Yeah, so uh, I appreciate that concern. Mm -hmm. I think, it, think it's valid for sure. There's definitely a part of me that appreciates the, like, the academic rigor Absolutely. Uh, yeah. of what I think these teachers are attempting to do, which is to say, instead of just telling kids these people are bad and dismiss right. their ideas, they're saying, let's examine these ideas and really analyze them, right? Um, which I think is empowering in a way. Mm -hmm. Now, the other side of the coin with that is, uh, there are things in the world that are right, and there are things in the world that are wrong. Expressly. Right? And, uh, you know, I think uh, Barack Obama uh, captured this thought succinctly sometime back in the speech about the Charlottesville thing, being saying, like, you know, Nazis are bad. Like, how hard is it <laughs> to yeah. just say Nazis are bad? Right. Uh, so, you know, the idea that they're bringing in some of these far right wing, you know, national socialists, uh, you know, white supremacist KKK type. Although, right. in fairness, they have stopped bringing in members of the Klan. Because for, they showed up in the robes. Yeah, for, for some time now, uh, they, they haven't allowed that. But, um, but I do think a question that comes to mind is, what role does morality play right. in, in the classroom when you're bringing these groups in? Because these are not, um, these are not opposite sides of the same coin. Yeah. Right. To bring in the weather underground, which if you, you know, agree or disagree with their methods, was really a group that was trying to promote, you know, uh, social justice and liberation in mm -hmm. some way, as opposed to the Klan, which is a murderous, terrorist, genocidal organization. With a long history of that. Right. right. Exactly. Right. Um, like these, this is a false equivalency to pair those two groups with one another. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I, I would I question and I wonder in what ways are students being engaged with, you know, here are some universal truths and rights and wrongs. Exactly. Apply that to your rigorous analysis. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, you know, YouTube is a place where there are quite a few extremist views out there. And every once in a while I'll see a, a suggested video and it's um, some far right or no, that's far right person who's, who's complaining that college campuses aren't allowing them to speak and, and what happened to free speech and this and that. And that whole conversation, I think, is just tired because um, there are certain ideas that really just have no place in a democratic society. Any idea that dehumanizes others or refuses to uh, see the, the humanity in somebody of another race or another religion, those ideas just don't have place in a democratic society, in my opinion, and especially they don't have a place in a, in a um, public high school class. But again, I'm only um, able to speak about this class to the extent that I read about it in this article. So if you're familiar with this class and you know there's additional context that wasn't in this particular article or that we um, seem to be missing, uh, drop a comment, let us know. Yeah. All right, on to the third and final lexicon term. 
see what we got. Backfire. Mm. Uh, that's like, uh, I remember hearing this a lot when I was a kid, like when an old car, you know, is trying to start up and you get that boom, that backfire coming yeah, out the tailpipe. So they shooting, they shooting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. Not that. Um, in this case, this is a plan in Texas to really boost um, physical fitness and uh, physical education classes mm. that um, really backfired, according to a recent uh, working yeah. paper. A new article in The Atlantic profiles a paper studying the effects of a Texas PE initiative. The initiative was called Fitness Now or Texas Fitness Now, and it was a $37 million endeavor to improve middle schoolers' fitness academic achievement and behavior by requiring them to participate in PE mm -hmm. every day. Not only did the researchers notice the program did not boost physical fitness, it also didn't have any positive impact on the kids' health or educational outcome in general. And on the contrary, they found that the program, which ran from 2007 to 2011, actually had detrimental effects correlating with an uptick in discipline and absence rate. 37 million to boost PE, require it daily of middle schoolers, and they saw absenteeism go up and uh, uptick in discipline problems. Jeff, what yeah. happened? How did this backfire? What's I, going on? You know, so I'm gonna, before I answer that question, uh -huh. I'm gonna say, I'm not mad at the effort to boost physical fitness right. and get Absolutely. kids get kids moving. Yeah. All I mean, you can drive down any street in America nowadays. When was the last time you had to stop because kids were throwing a ball or playing tag or anything in the street? Can you remember the last time you had to stop for some kids? Uh, absolutely not. It's, right. Yeah. Because they're inside sitting on the couch with an iPad or a, a tablet of some kind. Playing Fortnite or something. These right. young whippersnappers. Xbox, right. And I'm not saying those things are the devil and we need to right. get rid of them. But I am saying we have a serious crisis with childhood obesity. We need kids up and moving, right? So, hey, I'm glad they invested these resources. Now, to your question of what happened, like, uh, to be honest, I'm mm -hmm. kind of surprised that they actually saw detrimental effects. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just, it raises some big questions for me about quality of implementation, right? Um, you know, the, the researchers noted that um, bullying might be a, uh, a major reason why kids uh, didn't want to spend right. more time in PE or wanted to, you know, stay home or skip class rather than right. attending that additional time. And I'm saying that I think falls on the adults involved, right? Like um, we need to have enough structure in PE class and a, uh, a strong enough student teacher ratio in PE class and well-trained enough teachers in a PE class to make sure that what's taking place is not bullying, but is right. some actual physical education, yeah. right? That's what the PE stands for. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's big questions about what was being given to the kids. Is just right. more time for, that's kind of unstructured for kids to make fun of each other yeah. or good structured physical education. Right, I guess it's not so surprising that mandating something, anything, in this case, uh, PE, uh, to be taught every single day um, doesn't really do much if the quality of that instruction or quality of that course or curriculum uh, isn't improved isn't improved or isn't good to begin with because it's just more of something that's detrimental and i you know it takes me back to middle school and i remember um you know leaving elementary school and entering middle school one of my fears based on what i saw on tv sitcoms and what have you was this idea of being naked in the locker room because everything mm -hmm. i saw on tv and movies made it seem like in pe like you're naked in the locker room and i remember the anxiety of like not wanting to be naked around my peers mm -hmm. and it just so happened my middle school was one where we weren't naked in the locker room but still there's that just sense of like 
again, not wanting to be looked at. And it's no surprise to me that bullying um, is, is something that is more likely to happen in a locker room where there might not be enough adults present and kids are changing clothes and this and that. So, you know, to have PE every day and you already don't like PE, I guess it's sort of logical that the conclusion would be an uptick in absences and discipline issues. So, you know, if anything, I hope this uh, reiterates the importance of making physical fitness classes, PE classes, something of high quality where it's not just kids walking around or jogging around. Um, you know, or a person just throwing out the balls and, and letting mm -hmm. the, you know, the athletes exactly. take them and play basketball while the other kids text and, yeah, you know, exactly. do nothing, right? Um, and there are some really great PE teachers out there, so I don't want to paint the picture. Oh, yeah. It's all one, right. one way. Uh, but, you know, it, it does raise questions about we need to invest in this as a, as a society. So I'm happy that they put the money in, but I, I wonder if... Uh, you know, maybe there might have been some other investments to make sure that that this time could be used well that right. uh, that might have been needed. And maybe this is actually showing us that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this research study, um, this paper hasn't been published yet, but we'll link you to the Atlantic article about it so you could um, read for yourself. All right. So that about does it for today's Do Now. And uh, up next will be our seminar segment with two uh, very impactful guests uh, who have uh, great expertise in trauma-informed care. All right, so stay tuned for that. A growing consensus among educators, healthcare providers, community groups, and politicians is recognizing that students' mental health is not only every bit as important to their ability to learn as is their physical health, but also may warrant substantial shifts in how we allocate resources to schools. A recent flurry of studies have shown that students' exposure to trauma, or a broader set of damaging experiences called adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, can result in toxic levels of stress that lead to serious emotional and physical consequences. A 2009 study published by the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry found that more than 25% of American youth experience a serious traumatic event by their 16th birthday and many children suffer multiple and repeated traumas, including abuse, maltreatment and neglect, traumatic loss, serious accidental injury, and community violence. And right here in Los Angeles, a 2014 screening of Los Angeles Unified students found that 88% reported experiencing three or more traumatic events in their lifetime, and 55% of those students showed symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder depression, or anxiety. While the clinical definition of trauma from the American Psychiatric Association requires that a person experience or perceive actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence, ACEs cover a broader collection of harmful experiences. They include three broad categories, abuse, either physical or emotional or sexual, neglect, and a range of household dysfunctions like substance abuse, domestic violence, and incarceration. Most of us have intuitively felt the connection between trauma, ACEs, and negative outcomes for kids. We've all known someone who acted out after their parents got divorced, or who developed anger issues as a result of an abusive parent, or who turned to substance abuse to self-medicate. What more recent studies have helped us understand is that beyond the obvious, intuitive connections between trauma, ACEs, and problematic behaviors, 
The ripple effect of these experiences on the life trajectory and physical health of children over time is more troubling than we thought. Research suggests that children who experience multiple traumatic experiences or ACEs are significantly more likely to experience a host of negative life outcomes, including physical illness like type 2 diabetes and heart disease, physical disability, and even early death. And when we compound these impacts with the social, mental, and economic toll of things like racism and poverty, many students in American public schools are facing mental health concerns that may be at least equally important to determining life outcomes, as is their academic progress. Thankfully, we are learning more about both the neuroscience of trauma and how it affects the brain, and how to implement trauma-informed practices in schools that help mitigate some of the impacts of trauma and ACEs. This is a relatively newly codified set of practices, but certainly builds upon the cultural knowledge of communities heavily impacted by trauma for generations. Today, we take a deeper look at the impacts of trauma and adverse childhood experiences on America's children and schools. How do trauma and ACEs present new challenges for American educators? And what role can trauma-informed practices play in helping us address these urgent issues? Time out, time out. This is Manuel Rustin. Quick message. Um, there are times when you have a super dope lesson plan and just as you're about to deliver it, you realize you made the wrong photocopies or your projector bulb goes out or the Wi-Fi goes down. And when that happens, you got to find a way to push on. And that's what we had to do for this seminar. Our mics inexplicably started to do weird things. And we had to push on because these guests went far out of their way to come to the TV studio and school us on trauma-informed practice. You're about to hear a truly fantastic conversation on the subject, but the audio is um challenged. However, we didn't want to remove this segment because the content is too good to pass up. So bear with us. This segment sounds weird. Back to the show. All right, folks. Uh, thank you for joining us for today's seminar. I am super excited uh, that we are going to be digging deep into really just a fascinating topic today, um, exploring these ideas around trauma-informed practice and what this means and why it's important for our schools um, today in, in, in American public schooling. We have two amazing guests with us uh, that I'm super excited to, to have here and to introduce to you. Um, so I'm going to start immediately to my left. Uh, here we have David Adams. Um, David is uh, here with us all the way from New York City. He is the uh, Director of Social Emotional Learning for the Urban Assembly, which is um, a nonprofit that has created and supports over 20 um, public schools in the New York City Department of Education. Um, these are schools that serve intentionally uh, communities that have been long underserved by the school system. Uh, David's work ensures that educators are supported in developing social and emotional uh, skills, um, uh, in developing those skills in their students, to ensure that they're able to succeed in uh, school, in their community, and in life. And also, uh, outside of his work, David is uh, a company commander in the U.S. Army Reserve. So welcome, David. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, and to David's left, uh, we have Siobhan Taylor. Uh, Siobhan is uh, a radio host um, and producer of Lifestar Radio, which is available on radiojustice.org. Um, she also hosts and produces uh, Flip the Script on KPFK Pacifica Radio, that's 90.7 on your FM dial here uh, in the Los Angeles area. Um, she is a trauma educator who facilitates 
uh, workshops on the correlation between childhood trauma and health outcomes. Um, and she has trained medical professionals, she's trained teachers, she's trained social workers um, and therapists, and she also teaches trauma-informed nonviolent parenting. So we have uh, a wealth of expertise from our guests here today. Uh, welcome, Shimon. Welcome, David, uh, to all of the above. Thanks for having us. All right. So why don't we jump into uh, today's conversation, um, really to, to kind of get your thoughts on um, what impacts do trauma and adverse childhood experiences have on young people in school? And maybe, Siobhan, we'll, we'll start with you. Well, first of all, let's be honest. Sometimes that the school is the trauma. Mm. Sometimes that is the space where you're going to get these adverse childhood experiences or reinforced after, before they even come into school. And when we're not addressing that and we're talking about it like, oh, these kids are just bad, that school is just bad, we're not being honest about what's happening underneath, not being honest about, hey, these are children who are moving through something difficult. So when they get into our classrooms and we only see it that way, now we've, our all we're doing is pushing the complete dominant paradigm in our classroom. Like, hey, you're a problem. We need to fix that by punishing you. And when you do that, all you're doing is pushing this idea that I have to protect myself. And that inhibits learning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. David, uh, what, what are your thoughts? What, um, what impacts do trauma and adverse childhood experiences have on young people in school? Yeah, um, I think Siobhan covered some really good points there. Um, I'd add that um, we think about two major ways that, that, that trauma impacts student behavior. Um, the first thing we think about is how stress impacts brain development. Um, and we know that trauma, particularly in early childhood, uh, creates what we call toxic stress, which is long-term periods of stress for the brain. Um, and we know that when students are exposed to these long-term periods of stress, they tend to have what we call the heightened sense of threat awareness. That means like if you look at a neutral picture and you show a student who has been through a trauma, a neutral they tend to they tend to see threat, um, even if it's a neutral picture. So when you think about what that means in a school, um, you have students who are more sensitive to threat, who respond then to situations in a more aggressive way, and then are responded to by teachers in another aggressive way, which then reinforces this idea that there are threats abounding. And so that creates this loop of students who are sensitive to threat, creating threat situations, teachers responding to students in a threatening way, and then students relearning these pathways that aggression is the most effective way to get their needs. Follow up also on, on Siobhan's point, I think that what we need to make sure is that our schools are protective factors for them. Um, we need to make sure that our schools are things that protect our kids from the types of risks that support uh, trauma. Um, and we do that in two ways. Number one is we make sure they have trusting and loving relationships with adults. Um, and number two, we make sure that they're close to things like social and emotional development and have an opportunity to express their emotions. Yeah. So you're making me think of something I, I heard Siobhan say uh, before, which is this, uh, this idea that... Um, uh, a student's behavior is telling a story. And uh, I'm wondering, Siobhan, if you can maybe say a little bit more about, about that and what, what, that, what that means in this world of kind of understanding trauma-informed practice. So when you have a trauma-informed approach, you're coming at it from perspective of looking at the behavior as communication, not as something that needs to be fixed. And a lot of times we miss a lot of key things happening for children and the story that they're telling because we want to correct the behavior. A lot of times you have people who will tell you things like, oh, well, what, this way worked. This was effective. 
the definition of worked was compliance, not healing. So when we are missing that, we're missing out on opportunities for healing. And it's not just the children. The other thing is, it's not just the children that we look at and say that they're misbehaving. It's also the children that are compliant. And we miss a lot of things that are happening for the quote unquote compliant child. Because the kid that wants to sit in the back doesn't participate. You know, they could be moving through something. But we're, we're so busy trying to focus on correcting behaviors. So, oh, well, that kid's good. That kid's not a problem. That kid's okay. And then now we're not paying attention to other signs that there might be spaces where we, we could be a space for healing. Now, like a lot of adults who teach at, in schools that serve marginalized communities, uh, I myself, having worked with a host, whole host of students who have had adverse uh, childhood experiences and, and um, traumatic, experiences in, traumatic experiences in their life, as I develop that relationship with them and as I try to uh, understand the way their uh, past trauma is affecting their behaviors in class, oftentimes I find myself um, feeling some sort of weight or some sort of, um, I, don't, I don't even know hardly how to explain it, but I feel like the more I work with students who've experienced trauma, sort of the more it affects my mood and, and sort of my own experiences in the classroom. So I was wondering if either of you could explain uh, Speak a little bit about how working with uh, children who've experienced uh, these traumatic experiences, how that impacts the adults who, who are working with the students. So a lot of times when I'm coaching teachers, I always remind them that's that thing that we keep hearing, that's our favorite word, self-care, mm-hmm. that's actually important. Mm-hmm. And being able to check in with yourself. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we, we want to go in and heal and we haven't actually addressed whatever it is before we're, we're dealing with before we even go in the classroom. And so that is often the energy that we come in with. Even mm-hmm. if we claim we want to heal, we end up pushing students away because right. we're in a whole different headspace. And let's be honest, hearing these stories a lot of times from the children that we work with is in itself traumatic. Sometimes that's difficult, especially if it's triggering for you. So I always recommend, you know, before even dealing with the situation, check in with yourself. Why does this behavior trigger me? Why does this behavior, you know, affect me? Look at yourself first and then go into it. Because if you don't address that first, you're mm-hmm. going to go in and basically pull from your own toolbox of trauma and mm-hmm. create, basically create this cycle. And then probably not even just probably you'll create an unhealthy relationship with the student. Mm-hmm. So it's important that you check in with yourself. Make sure even before you walk into that classroom, before you even do anything, that you are doing the things you do for your self-care, exercising, mm-hmm. taking your deep breaths, meditating. If you can do that, whatever it takes to get you in the headspace that you need to be in moving into that space. Yeah, Emmanuel, I think that um, just to add on to, to the points that Siobhan was making, um, I think great teachers are authentic. Um, and to be authentic, you need to be vulnerable. And I think one of the, one of the challenges in, in being authentic and vulnerable in the classroom um, is that students can pack that, um, particularly students who are struggling to make relationships. They, they may test your authenticity, authenticity um, mm-hmm. by pushing you and seeing how far uh, you are willing to go. Um, and I think it's very difficult for, for teachers um, and for administrators uh, to maintain that sense of vulnerability in the face of, 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 of trauma and, of, and those kinds of challenges. Um, and I think in that context, right, it's just, as Siobhan was saying, it's really important for our teachers to have a the community that teachers form with each other um, is going to be that, that cohesion that allows us and gives us the energy to, to re-engage with students. You know, making sure that your, your coworkers 
are feeling okay. You know, going out and having a couple at the at the library, uh, like we used to do after after Fridays. Um, making sure that community of school uh, teachers uh, strong um, is going to be one of the most important things that we can do for our teachers so that they can be there, be there for their. Yeah, just uh, hearing you all talk uh, certainly resonates. I think a lot with me and my, you know, my experiences as a teacher and as a as an administrator, um, thinking about the the role that the, the secondary trauma, the vicarious trauma that that educators and caring professionals, I think of of many sorts, experience with their um, students, their patients, their clients. Um, that when you're in relationship with folks who are going through that, that you carry part of that burden yourself, mm-hmm. and that that enacts a certain a certain toll yeah. um, on you as a as a helping professional mm-hmm. um, and as someone in relationship with. Yeah. Um, the the thing it makes me think about is is also the the sort of implication of that on how we allocate resources. Uh, in our profession, right? And we think often, you know, nowadays equity is like very much a buzzword in many circles in education, and I'm I'm not mad about that, uh, just to be clear. But uh, I think sometimes we maybe lose sight of, uh, like, what does it really cost to have highly segregated schools where we have con- highly concentrated pockets of trauma and adverse childhood experiences? And so not only just the the you know sort of services and and um and things we need to get for the students to make up for all these historical and and present day wrongs but also the adults who are working um in that context and the the additional weight that they carry the harder work that they do than some of their colleagues who work in the situation where maybe that burden is is less mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i you know i think there's there's a lot there for us to think about not only in terms of work with students, but also work with supporting yeah. educators, right? To be effective in that context and to not get burnt out or start exhibiting some of the problematic behavior, Siobhan, that you, that you mentioned. Um, so I, I want to pivot us a little bit to think about, uh, you know, we've talked about the, the students themselves, we've talked about educators, but this work certainly has implications well beyond the, the four walls uh, of, a, of, a, of a classroom. Sure. So how does the work supporting, um, you know, trauma-informed practice uh, go beyond the walls of the school and intersect with, with communities? And why is this work important? Um, maybe, David, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, it's not a, not a burnt-out saying that it takes a community to raise a child. Um, it's, it's the truth, right? I have two sons of my own. Um, my parents come over every morning to take them to, to the school. They take care of them after school. Um, my brother lives around the corner, uh, make sure that, you know, whenever they need something, they afford it. Um, our communities are, are either the things that push our students up or pull them down. Um, and we need to be really clear about what kind of students that we want to and how we communicate for our community organizations is going to be the thing that allows us to either be specific and be cohesive in that, or be kind of all over the place in terms of competing for different situations. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I had a conversation recently, and uh, an assistant principal said, you know, uh, it's hard for us to teach social emotional skills. They said, because our parents don't value the same. And so the question became, what is it that our, our communities value? Um, and how do we use what they value 
to speak to the things that we know are important, right? Of a, of a community values being aggressive, of a community values being tough, why? Right? What are the experiences that our students have, have gone through that have spoken to those And then how do we then take those ideas and then translate that into students who are able to and willing to resolve conflict more? Right? So when I spoke to a student uh, today um, and I asked her, you know, well, tell me a little bit about how your family resolves conflict. He says, well, you know, sometimes we yell. Um, but I told my parents that I really want to work things and talk things out more. And I asked her why. He says, well, if we talk things out more, right, we don't have to worry about hurting each other. So I guess my point here is, is that our communities are often seen as, as enemies sometimes. They're seen as these things that stop our students from being effective, or parents are not, you know, engaged enough or teaching the wrong values. But in fact, you know, we all bring assets to this work. Um, parents who struggle with their kids or hitting their kids, they're trying. They're trying to discipline their kids. They may not use the best approaches, but they're trying. How do we start from where our parents are at? How do we start from where our communities are at and use that to build assets and social emotional development in our students? I definitely want to piggyback off of what you're saying, because I also noticed that, you know, with that, that sort of judgment mm -hmm. that we get from school administration and staff towards the parents and how can we teach our children, you know, social emotional learning? How can we teach them empathy if we're not even showing it to their parents? And that's often what gets missed. We're always modeling and we're always, you know, and they're always mirroring mm -hmm. what we do. Mm -hmm. So if we're judging parents, if we're saying, you know, and, and keep in mind, kids hear these things. I don't, I don't know why teachers think kids can't hear. We hear, you know, when I was growing up, I heard everything these teachers were saying about people's parents and about other students. And when you hear these things, it's like, okay, you know, my, does my, is my teacher also judgmental? Is my teacher showing empathy? You know, even if you're not talking about your own parent, maybe talking about somebody else. But if the school itself does not have that support for the parents of understanding empathy, or, you know, I know you work two jobs yes. and it's difficult to get down here yes. for the, you know, for the report card meeting, yes. you know, so I can call you, you know, on your lunch break at work, if, you know, because it, it matches up with my, my free period or whatever it is, you know, trying to be flexible and understand, like, how do we get the need met? Mm -hmm. And let's come up, let's, let's collaborate with that, you know, to make an effective strategy to get that need met. Because mm -hmm. one of the key parts, one of the key principles of healing is collaboration mm -hmm. and choice. And we have to provide that for our parents if we want the kids to also emulate mm -hmm. that. And if I just may follow up one more time, I think, you know, all parents want to be good parents. Yes. Um, and even when they struggle, it's up to us to help them see how to get through that struggle. So I think if we can see these assets, you know, if we recognize our parents are working jobs, right? When we ask them to pull, uh, pull their kid out of school that day, that they're actually losing their wages, right, to come in and, re and respond to that. When we are calling home to our parents and we're offering suggestions, not just complaints, oh, you're, you know, your student did X, Y, and Z, um, and, and the parent is struggling just like we are, right? Like, we're all struggling with this kid. He's a difficult kid, right? So are we just calling home and saying, and this is what we're doing? Um, and can you help us do this at home? Or are we just calling home so that the kid is put in a situation at home where, you know, the parent is yelling at him because she lost a day's wages and had to come and get that student? So I just think the collaboration piece that Siobhan was talking about is really, really important. And when we talk about trauma-informed care, we talk about seeing kids for the kids who they are, seeing parents for the people who they are, and, 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 and teaching towards those assets. And for schools to be successful, they have to see the students as the community, like you are the community producers. This is what you're creating. 
we can't control what happens necessarily outside of that. Right. We can, what we can't control is here in this space. So are we a space of healing? Are we a space of trauma-informed care? Are we a space of growth and progress? Are we actually doing that? And are we teaching, these, teaching this to the children who will now be community members? Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, our schools, this stuff sticks with you. Yeah. Whether it's conscious or not, it sticks with you. And we're, if you want to be a successful school, then you have to be able to have that perspective that our job is to create this community. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, the Jeff mentioned earlier, equity being becoming, unfortunately, a bit of a buzzword in education circles. And and I'd venture to say that uh, trauma informed care is, is along the lines of becoming a buzzword around education uh, circles. A lot of teachers, a lot of schools, if you ask them about uh, trauma, um, a lot of them will say, well, you know, we use uh, trauma informed practices and maybe they'll even throw in the term uh, restorative justice practices when it comes to their discipline. But in your work, um, as far as what you've seen, um, what are schools themselves doing well or, or not so well when it comes to really supporting students um, who are dealing with trauma related issues, like getting past the buzzword, getting past the one shot trainings that might be happening here or there in particular districts? What have you seen schools um, with regards to what they're doing well? or specifically what they're really not doing a good job on? Well, I can, I can speak to some of the practices that I've seen. Um, I think the, the first thing um, is an emphasis on quality relationships. Um, we learn through relationships, right? Uh, we emulate people we care about. Um, and so when teachers are teaching content, not students, um, then we have students who are learning you know, not at their optimal level. So I think great schools care about the relationships that carry the information of math, science, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the first thing. Um, I think explicitly developing students' ability to name their emotions um, and having teachers who care about their emotion. Um, and that's not to say that a student comes in one day and says, I'm feeling frustrated, I'm not going to do any work. Right. But when teachers are attuned to their own states, and then they can have the students say, you know, I'm feeling frustrated. And the student the teacher says, I hear that. What can we do to work through this so that we can access that? Um, what can we do to work through that state so that we can be more effective? That explicit development of the teachers and the students um, is important. And the last thing I would say it's really important um, is discipline structures need to be consistent in school. Um, you know, Siobhan talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, inconsistent approaches to discipline are re-traumatized. Um, it is the worst thing that we can do for our students to have students who respond, or teachers who respond one way to one, respond another way to another. I'm not against discipline structures in schools. Um, I am against inconsistent that are then blamed on the kid for our, our, our lack of, of consistency of our own speech. Um, so I think those are three things that I think are important is quality relationship, making sure we explicitly teach these kinds of skills, and ensuring that discipline structures are discreet, um, fair, and consistent. You know, everything becomes a buzzword, right? right? And just because it becomes popular doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. Or it's, it's something that's not helpful. Um, and I know what happens all the times, all the academics get together and you start using new semantics. You know, it's not mental health, it's mental well-being, whatever, mm-hmm. right? So we get caught up in terminology and we're not getting, we're not getting engrossed enough into the science and into understanding the trauma and what's taking place. And when I look, talk to a lot of teachers about that, that, that is, you're absolutely right. They start being able to spell all the principles. They can tell right. you, they went to all the trainings, they understand it, then you go to their classroom. That's not quite what you see. And I've, one of the things I, I appreciate for, for teachers is that some teachers really are trying. It's more than just even how they treat the student one-to-one, it's even in their curriculum, mm. right? 
how many times do I have to hear that I was a slave? Mm. Right. How many times do I have to hear that, you know, we were suffering and then white folks got us free? You know, mm. how many times do you hear that? That, that in itself is also traumatic. Right. Mm. Um, so we have to, you know, when I see teachers that are doing things like that, introducing new, you know, books that, you know, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X or, you know, and, and sitting, there with being, sitting there and being able to analyze. I heard you talk about the movies that you have your students watch mm. and you, it's, it's a whole new approach and being able to look at the world and. And I see teachers do things like that. I'm like, okay, that's, that is a part of it. Also, some teachers I'm noticing have peace corners, especially now the elementary schools, you're seeing that now, where instead of where we used to have the, the dunce cap timeout sit in the corner, yeah. you know, now we're seeing peace corners. You know, do you need some space? Do you need some time? Mm-hmm. And they have a little basket there with paper so they can tear it or bubbles that they can blow or things mm-hmm. that they can squeeze. Maybe they, and sometimes I have, a t- if there is a teacher's aide, they can sometimes go outside with them and run around with them, let them come back. Because you're starting, so you're finding that happening, changing Mm -hmm. the conversation from, you know, when you come in here, we have a new set of rules and now you're saying, you know, hey, we have, let's, let's come to some agreements. What Mm -hmm. can we agree to in this space? Mm -hmm. So it again, is collaborative. So it again, offers choice. So Mm -hmm. it again, creates something where you can have relationships. How can I trust you as my teacher when you're always trying to be my authority? Mm -hmm. How can I trust you as my connected friend if you're always trying to be my authority? Some of the issues that I have also seen, um, but that teachers do consistently, and this is something, and this is very specific, and you probably have all witnessed it. There's a kid that's sitting in the back of the class with the hoodie on, mm-hmm. not bothering nobody, but not participating. And the teacher tells him to take the hoodie off, and the kid just sits there. Mm-hmm. Teacher tells him again, take the hoodie off. Now, the teacher who's not checking in with themselves by saying, what is triggering me so much that this, with this kid sitting here with this hoodie on, why is this bothering me? Every, all the other kids are working fine. You know, why is this bothering me? So if we don't check in, you might say, okay, the issue is he's not listening to me and that bothers me. Mm-hmm. So then maybe I can find a more effective way to communicate mm-hmm. what it is, you know, that needs to happen. Or just leave the child alone because maybe they're moving through something and talk to them after class. A lot of times the kid in the hoodie, they're hiding for a reason. That's, a, that's one of the big key indicators that there's something going on with the child. And what often happens though, teachers don't do that. They don't leave it there what they do is they provoke the student mm-hmm. and they have, then all of a sudden it's like, I have to, who's, who's, it becomes a, basically a pissing contest. Right. You know, who's going to be, and the teacher is not going to lose because one, they're the power. Mm-hmm. They know they can call security if they're, mm-hmm. it becomes violent, you know, and they also at the same time want to make sure the other students feel their authority. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you see that happen, then we have the child that comes, you know, we say it's violent or becomes not realizing that the child was basically provoked when they were already in a reptilian state already in mm. the part of their brain where they're in survival mode right. and you're taking that away from them. Let me just catch one more uh, point. This example, there's a student recently arrested for not standing up for the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. I, saw that. I was just thinking of the exact same thing. Take it as a matter of, no, yeah, no, sorry. You, you, you guess that that was the point, you know, where, 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 first of all, there's nothing wrong with not standing up for the Pledge right. of Allegiance in America. That is our right not to do so. Um, it was a substitute teacher who didn't yeah. have the skills, right, to, to communicate effectively. Um, then created a situation that escalated with the student um, that led to that student being arrested. Um, so, you know, I just, I just want to speak to that, that, that space. What kinds of cues do teachers know to check on the students? The difference between, you know, is everything okay, right? Or, you know, what's going on? And do the thing that I need you to do. The first is an invitation, the second is a directive, right? And we give invitations before we give directives. So those are kinds of things that, that we could develop with our teachers to speak to Siobhan's points so that we're not arresting kids for nonsense that could have been 
it would have been avoided through effective communication and teaching development. Yeah. I think, uh, David, the only thing I would, I would add to that is on top of the, the teacher's uh, issues, which I, I think you named in that situation, there had to be a dean, an administrator, a principal. I got to back up who my act- teacher. Who right? actually called the police. Yeah. Right? Who actually <laughs> saw to it that, yeah. uh, that that interaction took place. Yeah. And then there was presumably a prosecutor who actually was involved in filing charges yeah. against this 11-year-old child yeah. who, right. you know, who somehow wound up in custody yeah. with, with charges pressed over not, you know, standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. And that's what Siobhan so. said. She said, we have to make sure that our schools are not places that are also traumatizing. Yeah. And that means we got to do better than this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're going to have to put a pin in it there, even though it, it feels like we... How even, dare you, Jeff? Like... We, this is one of the highest powered guests panels that we've had um so i'll tell you what though we will have folks uh one-on-one conversations in our episode extras with both of these folks um where we're gonna we're gonna dig deeper into uh into these issues and and also get into some of the things that uh that maybe educators can do to uh to better address the issues than than perhaps uh some of our systems are doing currently Mm -hmm. um in addition to just learning a bit more about about these two uh, fascinating experts and their and their stories and how they came to be doing the the important and critical work they're doing now so um, I definitely want to thank uh, Siobhan Taylor, uh, radio host and um, trauma educator, uh, and David Adams, um, director of social emotional learning uh, at Urban Assembly uh, in New York City, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So if you're listening to the audio podcast, you're going to have to head over to our website for those one on ones because that's not included in this podcast because, you know, those are bonus material. So you're going to do a little bit of homework and head over to AOTAshow.com or our YouTube page, our YouTube channel, YouTube slash all of the above all to the above. see those one-on-ones because there's a lot more to discuss here for sure. That was an absolutely fantastic seminar. Remember, hit our YouTube channel or our website for our one-on-ones with all of our guests and additional links and resources. Also on our YouTube channel, we have a new teacher vlog where I share a little bit about my classroom practice And of course, all of our past episodes are there as well. So remember to hit those up, youtube.com slash all of the above or aotashow.com. But now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to shout out amazing people doing great things in education. Jeff, who are we shouting out today? Well, Manuel, today we're shouting out uh, Linda Darling-Hammond. And really, this is uh, also shouting out Governor Gavin Newsom, by Mm. extension. So uh, for those uh, perhaps outside of California who may not have heard, um, very recently, uh, our new governor, Gavin Newsom, appointed a new member of the State Board of Education, um, who is going to be stepping into the, uh, into the position of president of the State Board of Ed. Um, and that is the, uh, the luminary in our field, uh, Linda Darling-Hammond, legendary educator. Um, you may have uh, heard her name before because she was uh, the head of President Obama's transition team around education. She was uh, an early frontrunner to be secretary of education. Um, but uh, instead, Obama appointed Arne Duncan, um, who had been the um, 
the uh, head of the Chicago Public School System. So she's been uh, traveling in elite circles in education for some time. Mm-hmm. I think generally considered, uh, you know, a very thoughtful and kind of educator's educator right. uh, in a lot of ways. And um, you know, as someone in California who's deeply invested in, uh, you know, in needing to to put more into schools in California and needing to value the teaching profession and support our educators. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting to see Linda Darling-Hammond in that seat and uh, know that her experience and wisdom is going to be uh, in, a, you know, in another position of, of influencing policy. So um, props to uh, Governor Gavin yeah. Newsom and congrats to Linda Darling-Hammond. Absolutely. All right, folks, that's it for this episode of All of the Above. Thank you for watching or listening, and we will see you next time.